Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 77. As you wish. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I'm going to be talking about one of my all-time favorite movies, that is Rob Reiner's 1987 film, The Princess Bride. I'm going to be taking a look at the film as well as talk a little bit about the novel upon which it's based, but I'm not alone. Co-hosting this episode with me is my friend Amanda Broyles. So stick around after this trailer to hear us celebrate the 30th anniversary of a modern classic. since this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. walking across and, and you know what? Men too. Well, uh, 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 Stella. Men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa, they're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas? As much as I enjoy um, indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. 
And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh, yes. Required reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. Grandfather's here. Can't you tell me I'm sick? He'll pinch my cheek. I hate that. Maybe he won't. Hey, how's the sick? Huh? I brought you a special present. What is it? It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. It was a time when life didn't seem so complicated. Marriage is what brings us together today. What? 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 I'm killing myself once we reach the honeymoon suite. Wouldn't that be nice? A courtly age. Of gentle conversation. I will always come for you. But how can you be sure? This is true love. Oh, no. Is this a kissing book? No. Actually, there was a lot of treachery, peril, and revenge. Prepare to die. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line! <laughs> there were affairs of state. But I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder, and Gilda to frame for it. I'm swamped. And affairs of the heart. My Wesley will always come for me. Your Wesley is dead. I've seen worse. Bye-bye, boys. Have fun storming the castle. It's more than turning. What's the difference? We've got him. Think it away? It would take a miracle. Bye-bye. It's a story of love. A tale of adventure. It's as real as the feelings you feel. I'm kissing again. Someday you may not mind so much. The Princess Bride. Not just your basic, average, everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, ho-hum fairy tale. So, like I mentioned at the top of the show, I am taking a look at The Princess Bride, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, but I am not doing this alone. Uh, my guest for this episode is someone, I believe, who is podcasting for the very first time. So, please welcome my former fellow English teacher and my very good friend, Miss Amanda Broyles. How are you doing? Hey, I'm great, Tom. Thanks for having me. And indeed, this is my first podcast. Cool. Cool. Um, this is one of your favorite films, from what I, or it is your favorite film, from what I understand. It is. I, I would say this is my favorite film. Cool. So both of us like really like this movie, and, and before we went on the air, I was saying how we were both saying how we rewatched it recently, although honestly, I think either of us could have just done this cold, because we probably watched it so many times. Um What's your origin with this movie, like your history with it? 
So I, I saw this movie for the first time when I was five years old. Uh, and, and even then, it had been out for three years. So I saw it just on television. It was like total network broadcast with the Princess Bride commercials and all. And I, it was just this crazy experience for me because I, I was seeing adults do things that I thought kids would do. And I, I love the sword fighting. I, I love the Battle of Wits more than anything. I love that there are these larger-than-life people, some of them literally so. And it was, it was really just a magical experience for me, cheesy as hell as that is. It, it's something very true. So it, was, it, it sort of became my go-to film, and then this was my way of finding friends throughout the rest of my youth. Like, I would ask somebody, what's your favorite movie? And they would ask me mine, I would say The Princess Bride, and if they quoted something back, I knew we could be friends. <laughs> and, and if not, I knew that, you know, we, we would just go our separate ways. <laughs> That's a really good litmus test, though, because <laughs> like, it's hard to find somebody who doesn't like this movie. <laughs> oh, oh, I don't know if I should tell this story or not, but, I, but I'm going to do it. I've been thinking, is, should I say this? But I will. So I totally should have dumped this guy many months before I actually did, because we watched The Princess Bride together. He, he's like 18, and he's never seen this film. I'm like, you have to watch this movie. It's my favorite movie. We'd, we'd been together for like a year at that time. Mm-hmm. And we start watching this movie, and he's like, what is this about? And I'm like, just wait, just watch, stop talking. And then we, we get into the movie, and he's like continuing to fidget, continuing to complain. And the, and we see the, the clips of insanity, and he's like, oh, that's like the worst visual effect I've ever seen. And then I climb to the top, and he's like, it just gets even worse. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is your problem? Like, how can you not appreciate the other things that are happening with this film and he, like he couldn't suspend belief in any way at all. And we hear princess buttercup say the word hanged. And he's like, that's not even a real word. And I, and, it's, and so it's like, I just, I, at the time I really didn't know what to say because clearly we kept going out for months after that. But I should have said, look, you, you need to study advanced grammar for one. But then two, it was like, you have no sense of fantasy in your life. We should have been over at that yeah. point. I can imagine he probably likes a lot of those. He probably likes Michael Bay films, though, which is another deal breaker. <laughs> uh, there, there, were, there were a lot of deal breakers. Um, yeah, uh, I, I don't have a story that could top that. I honestly, mine, mine is where um, I can't honestly remember seeing this for the first time. It was just sort of always there, like. Um, and there's only like a handful of movies that I can attest to say I can really say that like um, The Wizard of Oz is one of them where it's not like a movie that I particularly like but it was just always something that we watched and um, <clears throat> my dad I know that we had an early copy on VHS um, and I was about probably about 11 or maybe 11 or 12 when I first saw it um, and uh, because I was 10 when it came out and um, my dad was a member of the Columbia House Video Club. Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, so basically, you know, they'd they'd um they'd send you the catalog every month and say send this back if you don't want the featured movie or whatever. And the majority of the movies were unaffordable anyway because they were about like eighty bucks a pop. But like you know, every once in a while you'd see the ones that were about a nineteen ninety five, twenty nine ninety five or whatever. And he bought it. I don't know why he bought it. If like maybe he and my mom had seen it and he really liked it. And it was uh, the first edition of the VHS, which was in the classic, you know, cardboard VHS box instead of the plastic clamshell. 
that what they would re- later release it in. And it was um, that I, I remember the cover very vividly. It was that poster of Wesley and Buttercup standing between two like big columns. And uh, we just would watch this movie over and over and over again and um, quote it, you know, endlessly, like me, my father and my sister. And uh, in fact, my dad would quote it with his students all the time. When Don't he was, say you. Yeah, when he I, was, not with my dad. Uh, my dad would not be a Francis Ferdinand. I mean myself. Yeah. So, <laughs> Sorry, your story. No, no, it's okay. When my dad wasn't doing his like Schwarzenegger impression of, you know, like get to the chopper and all that, which is where I get it from. Um, he would, he would be doing the, uh, I know one of his favorite exchanges was to get the kids to start to get, to do the hello, my name is Aniga Montoya. You killed my father prepared to die a bit. And either the kids or him would respond with stop saying that and, and stuff like that. So it's just been a movie that's been a fixture for nearly 30 years for me and for you. If nearly thirty, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but, yeah. In fact, the movie turns thirty this September. Um, it does. Yeah. So, uh, just a little background on the movie, and then I'll get into the plot synopsis, and uh, and then we're going to talk about what we love about the film, and and uh, break it down a little bit, review it. Um, the Princess Bride was released, and this is this data comes from Box Office Mojo, so we'll take it as it is. Uh, it was in limited release on September 25th of 1987 and then got a wide release on October 9th. Uh, the director was Rob Reiner, who um, I have to point out because I was, I was thinking about this and I said this when I covered stand by me last year around this time with my friend, Mike Bailey, that if you look at Rob Reiner's resume from 1984 to about 1996, there's one bad movie on that entire list, uh, which is North, which is, which is the movie that made Roger Ebert go, I hated, 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 hated this movie. But um, just Rob Reiner's list of films uh, from 84 to 96 include uh, This is Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, which I consider one of the most underrated comedies of the 80s, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride in 87, uh, When Harry Met Sally in 89, Misery, A Few Good Men, uh, then North, then The American President, and then Ghosts of Mississippi. So, like, you have this string of uh, really, really well-regarded movies, some of which were huge hits. And uh, this this did make money. It wasn't a complete box office bomb. Um, it wasn't like um, Eddie and the Cruisers or Heathers or, or one of those movies that uh, really only found its footing on video. Uh, it was a $16 million budget and it made $30.8 million. So it made its budget back and, and almost d- double that. Uh, in fact, it was the 41st highest grossing film of 1987. Uh, in 42nd was Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise. In 39th was Can't Buy Me Love, the Patrick Dempsey classic. Uh, number one movie in 1987, by the way, Three Men and a Baby. So that's kind of the the gist of its performance and stuff. And uh, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to give us a plot summary. The Princess Bride opens in the bedroom of a young boy, played by Fred Savage, who is homesick from school. His mom brings his grandfather, played by Peter Falk, into his room, and Grandpa pulls out a book entitled The Princess Bride by S. Morgenstern, and tells him that he's going to read it to him, just like he heard it from his father and grandfather when he was a kid. The grandson reluctantly agrees, and we spend the rest of the film inside the book, occasionally going back to the framing device, especially when the grandson interjects about how the book is a kissing book. 
For the sake of simplicity, I'm going to leave the framing device and spend most of my recap in the main story, but I'll come back to it at the end. Buttercup, played by Robin Wright, is a girl on a farm in the kingdom of Florin. She spends a lot of her time and energy making life difficult for a farm boy named Wesley, who is played by Carrie Elways. Wesley does not protest very much and only responds to her demands with the phrase, as you wish. And after some time, she realizes that he loves her and that she has fallen in love with him. Unfortunately, he soon has to leave the farm to find his fortune at sea, and then she receives a letter some time later that Wesley had been killed at sea by the dread pirate Roberts. She vows never to love again. Five years pass, and Buttercup is scheduled to be married to Prince Humperdinck, the Prince of Florin, who is played by Chris Sarandon. While out riding her horse one day, she is kidnapped by three criminals who have actually been hired by Humperdinck to cause a crisis that will draw Florin into an all-out war with its rival country of Gilder. The three criminals are a Spanish swordsman named Inigo Montoya, played by Mandy Patinkin, a giant named Fezzik, played by Andre the Giant, and a criminal mastermind, who is Vizzini, played by Wallace Shawn. They blindfold her, put her on a boat, and they sail toward Gilder. Buttercup tries to escape at one point, but it's futile, and Fezzik has to rescue her from the screeching eels. As they sail on, Inigo notes that another ship is following them. They reach the Cliffs of Insanity, and they begin to scale them, followed by the pilot of that ship, a man dressed only in black. While they reach the top before the man in black does, and they even cut the rope they were climbing, Vizzini is dismayed to see that he's still climbing the cliffs, just without a rope. Faster! I thought I was going faster. You were supposed to be this colossus. You were this great legendary thing, and yet he gains. Well, I'm carrying three people. And he got on to himself. I do not accept excuses. I'm just going to have to find myself a new giant, that's all. Don't say that, Vincini. Please. Did I make it clear that your job is at stake? He and Fezzik take off with Buttercup, leaving Inigo to fight him with his sword. The man in black makes it to the top of the cliffs, and before he and Inigo fight, Inigo asks him if he has six fingers on his right hand, and after the man in black reveals that he only has five, Inigo tells him the story of how a six-fingered man killed his father and gave Inigo two scars on his face. They fight, 
and the man in black wins, knocking Inigo out and moving on to face Fezzik. He bests Fezzik and then comes face to face in a battle of wits with Vizzini. The battle of wits, the man in black puts a poison named Iocane powder in a single wine goblet, and he mixes them around, challenging him to pick what goblets they will drink from. Vizzini tries to trick the man in black, but it backfires. Where is the poison? The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead. But it's so simple. All I have to do is divine from what I know of you. Are you the sort of man who would put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies? Now, a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given. I'm not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You've made your decision then? <laughs> not remotely. Because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. And Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them, as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Wait till I get going! Where was I? Australia. Yes, Australia. And you must have suspected I would have known the powder's origin, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're just stalling now. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? You've beaten my giant, which means you're exceptionally strong. So you could have put the poison in your own goblet, trusting on your strength to save you, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you've also bested my Spaniard, which means you must have studied. And in studying, you must have learned that man is mortal, so you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're trying to trick me into giving away something. It won't work. It has worked! You've given everything away! I know where the poison is! Then make your choice. I will! And I choose... What in the world can that be? What? Where? I don't see anything. Oh, well, I, I could have sworn I saw something. I thought no matter. <laughs> <laughs> What's so funny? I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. First, let's drink. Me from my glass, and you from yours. You guessed wrong. You only think I guessed wrong. That's what's so funny. I switched glasses when your back was turned. Ha <laughs> ha, you fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia. But only slightly less well known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> The man in black unties and unblindfolds Buttercup, and, well, he explains that both goblets were actually poisoned, and he has an immunity to Iocane powder, but she's not grateful for his rescue because he's the dread pirate Roberts, and therefore he's the man who killed Wesley. They snipe at one another, and she finally gets so frustrated that she pushes him down a hill. As he falls, he yells, As you wish! Buttercup realizes that this is Wesley, and she, well heads down after him but ends up tumbling down they reunite and they head into the fire swamp where wesley explains that he was captured but not killed by the dread pirate roberts but he was given the job of the dread pirate roberts when that man who captured him decided he needed to retire they travel through the fire swamp and he saves buttercup from fires quicksand and rous's 
I mean, what are the three terrors of the fire swamp? One, the flames burn. No problem. There's a popping sound preceding each. We can avoid that. Two, the lightning sand. But you were clever enough to discover what that looks like, so in the future we can avoid that too. Firstly, what about the ROUSs? Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. The entire time, they are being tracked by Prince Humperdinck and his right-hand man, Count Rugen, who is played by Christopher Guest. They're right behind them most of the way, but then they catch up to them on the other end of the fire swamp. Buttercup allows Humperdinck to take her back to Florin if he promises not to hurt Wesley. He does, even though he's totally lying, and they head off, leaving Wesley to be taken away by Count Rugen, who Wesley notices has six fingers on his right hand. Instead of being allowed to go free, Wesley is taken to the pit of despair, and he's hooked up to the machine, a device that literally sucks the life out of a person. Took me half a lifetime to invent it. I'm sure you've discovered my deep and abiding interest in pain. Present, I'm writing the definitive work on the subject. So I want you to be totally honest with me on how the machine makes you feel. This being our first try, I'll use the lowest setting. As you know, the concept of the suction pump is centuries old. Really, that's all this is, except that instead of sucking water, I'm sucking life. I've just sucked one year of your life away. I might one day go as high as five, but I really don't know what that would do to you. So let's just start with what we have. What did this do to you? Tell me. And remember, this is for posterity, so be honest. How do you feel? <laughs> Interesting. However, Wesley is later killed when Humperdinck, enraged at how much Buttercup hates him, storms into the pit of despair and throws the machine up to 50. Inigo, drunk in the thieves' forest, is reunited with Fezzik, and Fezzik tells him that Rugen is the six-fingered man. Inigo realizes that they need Wesley's help, and they seek him out eventually finding him what they think is all dead, but according to Miracle Max, the king's former miracle worker, is only mostly dead. Max is reluctant to work for them, even though the reason that Wesley has to live is true love. Hey! Hello in there! Hey! What's so important? What you got here that's worth living for? True love, you heard him? You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Yeah, Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for a nice MLT, a mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes are ripe. They're so perky, I love that. But that's not what he said. He distinctly said, to blave. And as we all know, to blave means to bluff. Huh? So you're probably playing cards and he cheated. Liar! 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 Get back, witch! I'm not a 
bitch, I'm your wife. But after what you just said, I'm not even sure I want to be dead anymore. You never had it so good. To love. He said to love, Max. Don't say My another God. word, Valerie. But eventually he decides to help Wesley, because not only is this for true love, but it will completely humiliate Humperdinck. And he's who fired Miracle Max in the first place. He prepares a miracle pill and he gives it to our heroes. They revive Wesley and they make it into the castle. Inigo confronts Rugen, but Rugen runs off. Kill the Dark One and the Giant, but leave the third for questioning. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Meanwhile, the wedding actually takes place, although the ceremony is a little rushed. Under you, Princess Bahwa, man and wife, same man and wife, man and wife. Escort the bride to the honeymoon suite. I'll be there shortly. He didn't come. Inigo and Rugen fight with Rugen remembering who Inigo is and almost killing him. But Inigo rebounds and gets his revenge. You must be that little Spanish brat I taught a lesson to all those years ago. Simply incredible. Have you been tracing me your whole life only to fail now? I think that's the worst thing I've ever heard. How marvelous. Heavens, are you still trying to win? You've got an overdeveloped sense of vengeance. It's going to get you into trouble someday. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Hello. My name is Diego Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Hello! My name is Diego Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that! Promise me that. All that I have and more. Please. Offer me everything I ask for. Anything you want. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Oh. 
Meanwhile, Wesley, who is alive but considerably weak, is on Buttercup's bed just as she plans to kill herself. There's a shortage of perfect breasts in this world. Could be a pity to damage yours. And when Humperdinck shows up in the room, Wesley confronts him by challenging him in a duel to the pain. He didn't say it. He didn't do it. Wouldn't you agree, Your Highness? A technicality that will shortly be remedied. But first things first. To the death. No! To the pain. I don't think I'm quite familiar with that phrase. I'll explain, and I'll use small words so that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. That may be the first time in my life a man has dared insult me. It won't be the last. To the pain means the first thing you lose will be your feet below the ankles. Then your hands at the wrists. Next, your nose. And then my tongue, I suppose. I killed you too quickly the last time. A mistake I don't mean to duplicate tonight. I wasn't finished. The next thing you lose will be your left eye, followed by your right. And then my ears, I understand. Let's get on with it. Wrong! Your ears you keep, and I'll tell you why. So that every shriek of every child at seeing your hideousness will be yours to cherish. Every babe that weeps at your approach, every woman who cries out, Dear God, what is that thing? will echo in your perfect ears. That is what the pain means. It means I leave you in anguish, wallowing in freakish misery forever. I think you're bluffing. It's possible, pig. I might be bluffing. It's conceivable, you miserable, vomitous mass. I'm only lying here because I lack the strength to stand. Then again, perhaps I have the strength after all. The duel does not need to take place as Humperdinck folds easily. Buttercup ties him up, and Inigo arrives from having killed Rugen. Then Fezzik arrives from some white horses for all of them to ride. They jump out of the window and ride away, and then Buttercup and Wesley share a kiss. And not just any kiss, one of the best kisses in history. We end the film with the grandson asking his grandfather if he could come back and read it again. The grandfather saying, As you wish. So you've heard enough of, of me kind of rambling on with the with the plot and everything. Um, the first uh, first question I wanted to ask, and we already did talk about this a little bit when we were talking about our history behind the film. I'm like, why why do you like this movie so much? As as I mentioned before, you've you've got these people who are are larger than life. You have the most beautiful woman in the world. You have the greatest swordsman in the land. You have this uh, swarthy guy in a mask who kind of looks like Zorro in this uncanny way, but also turns out to be the best at everything and all these people you meet. 
And then you have people who are literally larger than life. Andre the Giant, who I absolutely loved as a kid because he was just so. It's just Mm -hmm. when you meet someone who's just so big, it's just like, wow, like I'm so small. And I really want to be big, and this guy is super big, and he's acting in this movie, which I really like, and he's just funny. And then you have the R.O.U.S.s, which also larger than life. And, and all these things come together and in this movie that's just fun. And it's it's great for kids, it's great for adults. Uh, yeah. And you know, we, we've loved it from since the time that we were kids to the present. But something I wonder is if this is a movie that you have to watch for the first time when you're young. What, what do you think about that? That's a good question. Um, I'd have to ask somebody who did see it for the first time when they were adult. Um, I know, like I said, it's obviously my father was my age when he saw it for the first time or a little bit older than me. Cause my dad was born in 45 and this came out in 87 um, and he loved it, but then again, he loves, you know, movies like that anyway. He, he grew up on, my dad grew up watching like the Steve Reeves Hercules movies and the Tarzan movie, you know, like that sort of stuff where the characters were larger than life in that way. So it plays into that sort of very classic Saturday afternoon cinema type of, type of thing. I, I, I would be curious as to somebody who was, um, a young adult or an adult who was raised on um, some of the work, especially like the more action oriented stuff that we have today, like the, the blockbusters, the, the Marvel cinematic universe or, or, or things like that. If you showed them for this for the first time, like how they would react to it. Um, I can't, I can't do that experiment with my own son cause he's already seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I asked question. this question kind of as a follow up to my anecdote about my ex-boyfriend because uh, I, I wonder if he would have appreciated this film more if he had watched it when he were 10 years old instead of seeing it for the first time at 18 when he's already sort of uh, gone a different way. Because I couldn't understand why anyone wouldn't love this film. Uh, and yeah. he didn't. And I was trying to figure that out about him. And uh, maybe maybe this, there, it's – I don't know why. That's that's all. Yeah. That's why I wanted to hear your thoughts. No, and, and I think the, the, the interesting thing is that um, it's – like looking at it from the perspective of like a film or a story that's put together, it's it's really I mean it's one of those few movies that I can say where I think this is like a damn near perfect movie, and um, it really does have a lot of of things in there for adults that you don't necessarily get when you're a kid, um, and it holds up incredibly well because there are movies that I love you know that I liked when I was a little kid that are there. They're still good movies, but I think I enjoy them for the nostalgia factor more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably gonna get I'm probably gonna get uh, some comments for this, but I feel that way about the Goonies, which oh, I, I love Goonies. I love Goonies too. I love Goonies really as, as well. But I, I um, but sometimes I think when I've seen it, I I see it for the kind of the kid adventure that I loved when I was younger, and yet I see i look at the princess bride and i see like a really like perfect movie kind of like along the lines of like a back to the future where it's like it it's hard for me to find a real flaw in in the film uh, i i agree with what you're saying about goonies i haven't seen goonies uh in years uh but i i love sean astin and mm-hmm. this you know nerd girl crush on sean astin and i think if i watched it again i would love it only for that reason because i, I would see this as you know this isn't nearly as cool as Stranger Things. So, like, why am I watching this? 
but it, yeah, I no, I feel I feel what you're saying there. It we we may have aged out of mm-hmm. of that, but the Princess Bride is much more classic. Yeah, I have the nerd crushes on actresses the same way, so don't worry about it. Um. Oh, another <laughs> podcast, nerd crushes. <laughs> oh yes. The, one of the other things I love about this movie is that like how I was watching as I was watching it last night, um, how like important the performances in this movie are to the, to the movie because it's a really really well written movie and it's really well directed. But from everything from the framing device with Fred Savage and Peter Falk to um, some of the moments that I think in other actors' hands wouldn't work. Um, one scene that I love and I, and I love and love as the years go on, especially after like my stint in junior high school following wrestling for a little bit, the scene where they set Andre the Giant on, on fire and oh, he's doing the yes. Dread Pirate Roberts is here for your soul, it totally comes off as uh, like one of those videos that the WWF wrestlers would shoot like prior to a match, like, you know, um, like Hogan would Hulk Hogan would look at the camera and go, I'm coming for your brother and I'm gonna you know, like and, and that's sort of like taunting the taunting the opponent type of thing and it's like it and you can i don't think anybody but andre the giant could have pulled off like that scene or fezzik in general because you're right he he's so not timid but like really kind in the movie yeah he is there's just a lovable side to him (laughs) i think the same thing is true for for wallace sean and and the character of azini because we could look at, at a performance like that in any other movie and we'd be like, what the heck? Why are you here? We can't take that seriously, but that's perfect for that moment. And and he does it so well and he has the perfect look and, and the list was just wonderful and it, it's just memorable. It's inconceivable that anyone wouldn't enjoy that performance. Yeah. Um, Cause I mean, we, t- we talked about how you talked about these characters a little bit. You've got like, we've got really two, two plot lines going together in the inside of the story you have Inigo's quest for revenge that eventually ends up with the this one of my favorite sequences in the whole movie the the, the fight with Count Rugen and you of course you have Wesley trying to rescue Buttercup from Prince Hupperdink what makes these guys worth rooting for in that sort of like I want the hero to win sort of way why do we like these two characters so much maybe it's a sort of magical realism like you know not so much in the latin author style well but also maybe so like they they both have this reputation for being this like really awesome at something and, and so you know that they have to succeed at that but it's tough there it, this movie has a lot of moments that, that make us think that the hero fails so we see the the dream sequence where we're buttercup actually marries Prince Humperdinck, and then it turns out to not be so. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we see Wesley die uh, in the torture chamber. Uh, we we see Count Rogan totally cheat with the dagger to the heart. Uh, but then all these people overcome anyway, and it's like we know that they will. It, it's just a matter of figuring out how, and it, it's that how that, that keeps us watching. Who's the? Do you have a preference in the two villains between Humperdinck and Rogan, or, or um, you know what, like, I I have a hard time pinning down which one I like as a villain more because they're so much different than one another, and I think a lot of that has to do with the performances. Um, 
for instance, Christopher Guest plays a, essentially a psychopath, sociopath, or just a really sadistic person, but he does it with this understated performance of like this deadpan delivery where I think the exception of like two or three moments in the entire film, he barely raises his voice. I, I would, I would choose Christopher Guest as Rugen as my favorite of the two villains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the same time though, um, I've only seen Christopher Randall in one other movie and that is a uh, fright night from 1985 where he plays a vampire and, um, he plays a, va- and he's a much different role. He plays the kind of weird next door neighbor who's, but who's also kind of got this weird sex appeal thing going in, in Fright Night. Here, he's this weenie. Um, he is, yeah. It's hard to see him sometimes as the villain. Yeah. But he's such a spoiled brat. And I was watching it, um, or I put this in the notes where I, I um, and where we're going to talk about its legacy. Um, there is so much of, uh, Lord Farquhar from Shrek in, or there's so much of Prince Huppernick and the Princess Bride in Lord Farquhar and Shrek. Cause like I, I was um, at Universal Studios in Florida about a month ago, a month and a half ago. And we went on the Shrek ride, which props to Universal for having a lot of rides that are indoors. And, um, and as, as they're doing some stuff with Lord Farquhar, whatever. And I hear John Lithgow's voice. I can't help but think of, some of the lines that Chris Sarandon has that sort of spoiled overgrown, like man, boy, spoiled brat way that he delivers them um, where he is so on the verge of throwing a temper tantrum half the time because he's not getting exactly what he wants. And uh, he actually does it, but then uh, of course he loses much to French Savage's chagrin. He doesn't get killed though. (laughs) I had never thought about Shrek in relation to this movie before you had mentioned it earlier. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I I guess so. Yeah, I don't think that anybody who wrote Shrek actually was deliberately doing it. I think it's just maybe it's just playing on a character trope or or what. But I just, I I, I saw, and I just, like like I said, I just realized that within the last couple of weeks. But we've got this too, um, we've got like basically three things going on throughout this whole movie. We've got this framing device with uh, Peter Falk, TV's Columbo, telling Fred Savage, who is literally like a year away or six months away from um, from the Wonder Years at this point, this story of the Princess Bride. He's reading the book to him. And then within that, you have the two storylines of, um, of Wesley and Buttercup and this love story and, and him trying to get her back after she's been, you know, kidnapped and then taken back to guild the uh, florin i'm mixing my countries up that's right florin and uh and then you have then you have like the added layer of Inigo realizing that count rugen is the man who killed his father and and, and that playing along i personally think they're both into, they both depend on one another to get the story across i don't think this film would work without both of them um how do you think about that I, I definitely agree with you that mm-hmm. that the Wesley Buttercup storyline and the the Inigo Montoya Count Rugen storyline are are interwoven so well that, that the film doesn't work with both. Uh, 
I I'll be the first to say I love frame devices, but I think that this one would could be cut. It is it is unnecessary as a way to tell the story. Mm-hmm. But I think I think we have it there. I think 100% that we have it there because William Golden didn't want to give it up. So you mentioned what a what a well written movie this is, mm-hmm. and it's it's certainly because the author of this book also has a huge hand in this film. Yeah. And he the, in this book that he writes, there's this intricate frame story where he intercuts his his telling of S. Morgan Stern's story with these moments that are then represented in the film with, with Fred Savage and the grandfather. And I, I just think it's an attachment that he doesn't want to get rid of. He was really proud of his his frame story, and then, and he wants to incorporate that in some way, in a compromising kind of way, into this film. Um, that's that's where I, that's why I think we end up with with again Fred Savage and the grandfather. That maybe this is a way to I don't know show children this is your story or something. I, there, there maybe there's some kind of connection between seeing this when you're young, hearing this when you're young, and the character of, of Fred Savage. Um, yeah. I like the frame. You know, I I I, um, I think this the frame story is one of the things that uh, I guess you could remove it from the film and and you'd still have this really great story this really great fairy tale but at the same time there's a there there's a there's a real chemistry between the two actors the grandfather and grandson and i think in other hands it wouldn't have worked as as well as it does peter falk's performance as the grandfather is goofy yet sarcastic at times and he has this sort of this moment, I think it's like when 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 he's stopped in the screeching eel the screeching eel sequence. He's like, you know, you read that already. Oh, I'm sorry. Like, you know, he's kind of half sarcastic sometimes, or, you know, he's kind of playing into the fact that Fred Savage is playing this, you know, eleven, twelve year old kid who's just kind of, you know, he's we the the very first shot of the movie is he's playing the video game Hardball on the Commodore sixty four. And I didn't have to look that up. I remember that game very vividly. But he's playing video Impressive. games. That he's part of really the first generation who was playing these, you know, uh, playing Nintendo and all this stuff. And, and I guess the the worry from the older generation, as his grandfather says, you know, in my day, TV was books and like things like that. And so it it hits upon that. The relationship you have with like your elders, whether they be parents, grandparents, and, and so on, where um, when you start to get to that age and you start to lose a little bit of that wonderment, innocence you have toward, you know, you know them, um, and you go because he's like right on the verge between. I want to hang out with my grandfather. I want to hang with my dad or whatever. And stop it! You're embarrassing me. And he's he's kind of on the line toward the latter, but but by the end of the movie, he Fred Savage's character like is you know he's kind of admitting to himself and that you know he he, he loves these things and doesn't let let them go. And I, maybe it's because and maybe I'm looking at this like because I have a child who just turned yeah, ten. I and was I'm, just gonna say, how old is your son again? He turned ten as of this recording. He turned ten on Friday, mm-hmm. and he so, just got a video game system from you. Yes, yeah, see, yes. you've got all these things going on right here. You're you're yeah. thinking it through. And and uh, we were he was having a he had a pool party at our our. You know, community our HOA has you know Forest Lakes has a pool, so mm-hmm. we you know we had a bunch of his friends over and we all went to the pool and that was his birthday party, the easiest one to put together ever. 
and he's got a girl he's got a friend who's a girl and she's very sweet and they have a lot of the same interests like they both love steven universe and, and a bunch of other stuff and every once in a while like and i swear amanda saw this more than i did she caught the, she caught like one of them looking at the other one and i was like no 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 we are not getting into those feelings yet you're still 10 years old so maybe i am coming at that from that perspective of like oh my god i've got a kid who's starting to grow up and you know, is he going to like a lot of the stuff he likes when he's, you know, because had, um, had Fred Savage's character been, I don't know, three or four years younger, it would have been a completely unnecessary framing device because it was just like, Grandpa's going to tell me a story and he's just sitting there the whole rapt attention, but you get these interjections that are just like smart ass remarks, but that kind of taper off as you get toward the end of the movie. Yeah. It's true, and what you're saying is it's totally true of of, of William Goldman his crafting of the story, mm. and how he experiences it first as a young child, and then hopes that his own son will love it too. And there, there's definitely this this father son bond and father son conflict, and this thing about growing up that's there. Yeah. And it, it, all that aside, I I totally owe a lot to this frame story because it helped me so much teach frame narratives. When I was teaching the Canterbury Tales, when I was still in the classroom, mm-hmm. the Princess Bride was my friend in many ways. Yeah, I, that was always my because I think that was a term when I even when I was teaching sophomores that um, it was just one of the terms that they had to know. And I would I would use this and I would use Forrest Gump as the other example because not because I like the framing device in Forrest Gump. In fact, I actually don't like that movie very much, but it was a movie they were all familiar with. So, but yeah, this, this, I, this was something I used as a teaching tool. What's interesting though, is we were talking about how, like, you know, you can watch the princess bride as a kid and, and just to bring the novel in a little bit, I don't think at around this age, you could really read this novel and, and really understand it. Cause you're right. There's this what much more intricate, almost metatextual framing device in the novel about him trying to essentially adapt S. Morgenstern's like almost impenetrable book so that he can read it or have his kid read it or read it to his own kid and realizing that like I think at one point in the, in the in his sort of commentary on it in the novel he realizes that when he was read to as a kid his father or grandfather basically cut out all the parts that were boring and there were yes. like entire chapters of the Princess Bride that was like, here's this whole chapter on how they do this in Florin, and it was like this intricate bureaucratic detail of something. And for someone who enjoys political satire, I actually found that really, really amusing. But if I was 12 years old, I'd be like, what am I reading? Uh, yeah, it, it's very true. I I reread um, the metatextual, as you say, that's a great word, part of the Princess Bride book recently. And I thought, wow, I never picked on how much he's really like having this cathartic moment against all these publishing companies. Every other <laughs> thing is about how, oh, this and the publisher is so ungenerous. Oh, they have to justify their salaries. Oh, yeah, send a letter to this publisher to get a free copy. Make sure you waste their time because they're wasted mine. It, it, this is sort of like there's a really odd portrait of the artist happening in, in this frame story. And I, and I think when he adapted this for the big screen, he said, I can't let all of this go, so I'm willing to give you this. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately why, beyond anything about fathers and sons, why we have this frame narrative. Mm-hmm. I mean, luckily for us, and, and well, luckily for him, too, this wasn't his first screenplay. In fact, he wrote um, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid 
and I believe he won an Academy Award for it. So it's somebody who was coming in with also with experience, and you're right, maybe he wasn't letting certain things go, but he definitely was willing to um, compromise, whereas a novice screenwriter who's got this book that, you know, did really well might not be as uh, willing to compromise, and it might be taken out of his hands, knowing knowing the backstories of some movies that have gone that way, where the writer, you know, somebody had to step in to basically rewrite huge parts of the movie or or whatever because it was just unadaptable and i was actually the 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 framing device from the novel made me think of um had they played it completely straight you know had they actually just left the entire book in there and not rewritten that framing device to be what it was it made me think of the uh the nicholas cage movie adaptation and how you could have essentially made like almost like made adaptation about trying to straight up adapt a lot of the princess bride with all this metatextual like crazy stuff and adaptation is a weird movie that i've only seen like once but i know the central point of it is that he's trying to write i think the name of the book was the orchid thief and he's trying to write the movie and it's just basically about how he can't adapt this movie because it's just impenetrable in terms of its text but getting back to the movie i've been teaching this this podcast workshop at uh, the summer enrichment program through UVA all summer. And uh, I've had three separate groups of, of middle school students, mostly like rising seventh graders. And at the beginning of the uh, session, I always ask them, okay, like what are some of your favorite movies and, and stuff like that? And one class I came up, the princess bride came up and, and we were talking, I was, I was like really excited because, Hey, a bunch of kids who are like 12, 13 years old, like the movie. It's like, yay. Um, it's not going down the road of like, you know, oh that's an old movie you like that type of thing mm-hmm. um and i asked them and one of the kids said probably one of the best one of the best reasons why a lot of people like it i honestly think and i i ha- i'm hard pressed to find a movie that is as quotable as this movie i mean there are others out there but it's it's in that sort of top 10 of movies that that like you can quote like half the screenplay and people will recognize the line you're quoting at them and things like that. And you mentioned that when you were telling your story. Yeah. But what are, I mean, what are, like, let's just talk about our favorite scenes, our favorite quotes, you know, set our, set our analysis aside. And, like, you know, what, get back to, like, what makes this movie great and, uh, and, and specific things that, like, we always think of when we think of, specific scenes we always think of when we think of this film. Um, at the extent of sharing something very personal about myself, I, probably not a week goes by when, I say to my husband, I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. <laughs> and and then yeah, he's taken to saying, I'm not a witch, I'm your husband. Yeah, it's it's just kind of it's kind of cute and fun, but uh, he and I he and I banter back and forth all the time with with uh, quotes from the Princess Bride. And and the the rhyme game. We used to play the rhyme game together in high school. So uh, we would we would just you know. Mm. <laughs> charm <laughs> didn't get any harm Arr. and it, it's just fun like, and it's just like what the, so something like that you would think wow that like that would be so out of place in any other movie but because this is just quirky as hell it just works and yeah. it's something that we remember from it yeah um i uh the running the running thing in my house when i was a teenager and and, and lately because brett loves this line is um when we were leaving to do something goodbye have fun storming the castle and being that I'm from New York and like Billy Crystal does that perfect New York 
accent that it's partially his own accent, but he's he's you know he's doing a little bit of a caricature. But uh, that that line over and over, like throughout my entire my entire young adulthood, I'm going out, have fun, storm in the castle. Yeah, my my husband knew that we were going to do this podcast today. So earlier today, he sent me a text message that said, "Have fun." Emoji of a storm cloud and lightning. <laughs> <laughs> the emoji of a castle. His emoji I, game I'll is on point. <laughs> it it really is. His his rhyme game was on point when we were in high school too. Oh, by the way, he and I were playing the rhyme game when I was dating that other guy. It was it was just really. I mean, ob- ob- the life twist should have been obvious at that moment. The Princess Bride was, as you said, the litmus test. <laughs> well, you know, destiny destiny takes time sometimes. You know. It... <laughs> Indeed, but as you wish. Of course, we can't. We can't go without saying. Yeah. As you wish. It's just wonderful. Like yeah. you're, it's just, it's yeah. beautiful. I love the um the battle of wits and the and the the line Plato. You've heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, morons, and like the way Wallace Shawn delivers like every single one of his lines, but that entire sequence. Um, and watching that like just from a perspective of of filmmaking watching just Carrie always just sit there the entire time Vizzini is just going and then how he just keels over in laughter like something right out of Looney Tunes to be completely honest that's almost like a Chuck Jones Looney Tunes cartoon that entire sequence where he's you know you fell for one of the two classic blunders never get involved in a land war in Asia and never go up against a Sicilian when death is on the when line, death is on the line. He's, he's just yeah. keels over and it's that I think I, I love that scene ever since I was a little kid mainly because it seriously was like a Daffy Duck cartoon or something where like you know it's just rabbit season duck season rabbit season rabbit season duck season fire and you know and and he gets he gets his beak blown on the back of his head or whatever and uh, the other the other one that my dad used to say all the time was the Prince Humperdinck's line about how he's got his country's 500th anniversary to f- plan his wedding to arrange his wife to murder and Gilder to blame for it. I'm swamped and, and, and things like that. So it was this real, I mean, for me, it was like this real family sort of uh, thing. And what's interesting, though, what you and Paul do with, um, with Princess Bride, a man that I do with The Simpsons. Okay. Uh, like, because that's the, the thing the two of us just really watched a lot when we were in college and then and we will we will quote the simpsons and we will quote dazed and confused quite a bit but it is it is um for me it's me and my sister and my dad uh, a, a lot of these but do any uh, you know aside from what we've mentioned do any other uh moments from movies stick out or like if you had to choose like your top go-to top five go-to moments from the princess bride oh the sword fight I'll do you left-handed. That is pretty amazing. And, and if Jamie Lannister could do anybody left-handed, the plot of A Song of Ice and Fire would be very different. <laughs> so again, like we see these these amazing swordsmen, and it's just like it's just cool. And in yeah. in the the Carrie Elwes autobiography, as you wish, he talks about how they they train for days and days, months to to learn the sequence, and it, it's really cool. And I like the um, I like the elegance of the sequence. And I like the banter because they're discussing sword fighting technique while sword fighting. And it's so great because he's like, you know, I've, I don't even know half the, I'm trying to remember how to pronounce it. Like he's the Gripa and, you know, this cancels this out and, and, uh, you know, they're back and forth and it's this, 
as opposed to say, um, as opposed to say some of the lightsaber duels in Star Wars, all of which I love, but like, you know, where there's this real aggression between, you know, like in Empire, there's this real aggression between Luke and Vader that's going on where, um, where it's, it's not witty banter back and forth. It's just sort of like, you know, anger, I'm coming at you and a couple of really wisecrack lines in, in Star Wars, it's Vader taunting obi-wan because he's old and i'm now the master and all that but here you've got this just it's almost a battle of the wits in itself framed within the within the sword fight it is like and you have this sense of honor mm-hmm. inigo is not gonna fight this man right-handed because it's unfair so he thinks so he's like i'll do him left-handed and then it turns out that wesley's really kick-ass too and he can fight left-handed but you as the viewer don't know that wesley is that awesome at that point you kind of think so yeah but but you're not sure Until that really grand moment when he throws up the sword and catches it in the other hand. And then so the fighting continues. Yeah. It's just just beautiful. I love how, I mean, you know it's Wesley when, uh, like right before the beginning of the fight with Inigo. I mean, if you've been paying attention to the film, you know that's Wesley underneath the mask. But they don't reveal it until she pushes him down the hill. But they're building this character of him because it's been what? What's the what's the time frame? Like five years. Between, five years, yeah. It's five years. So they're building the character that he's become in those five years, in a way that I think works much more effectively than had they actually shown. Because um, lesser directors and lesser writers would have shown the whole Dread Private Roberts sequence and him becoming the Dread Pirate Roberts and everything, and they just leave that to, um, this exposing through dialogue, and then in your head you can, you know, you, you can picture it if you need to, uh, because it's not necessary to show. And I have to point out, this the movie's runtime is just over an hour and a half, you know, as opposed to a lot of movies we have now, where you're in the theater, if you're watching the feature, you're in the theater for a good two to two and a half hours. So it's a, it's a really tight, tight movie. And then you got the sword fight at the end between Rugen and um, Inigo, and Rugen fights so dirty. He does. No honor, no honor at all. Was a total coward, and especially when he runs away, like the minute just he takes out like those three guards, and he just looks at him and he goes, takes off. That's a good moment too. I, yeah. I I do like that one. Yeah, I love when he's running up against the door. Fezzik, he's getting away. Fezzik, and Fezzik has to put Wesley like on a on a suit of armor and like then knock the door down. He's like, there you go, and then he comes back and Wesley's gone. And um, you have that great that great confrontation between Wesley and and Humperdinck in the bedroom. Where, to the pain. To That's the pain. another one. Oh, I say that all the time. To the yes. pain. Yes. Oh, I love that. But the the fight. Getting back to the fight in the in the um, banquet room with Inigo and and Rugen, How Inigo like like you said the, the whole movie is larger than life. So the fact that Inigo lives through this and is fine by the end of the movie makes total sense within the context of the movie for me. I'm not sitting there going, oh, he should be dead by now, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, very much. In the same way that this woman is the most beautiful woman in all the world, this is the greatest swordsman, this is the wittiest man ever. Yeah, you have this guy. Oh, just a flesh wound. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, and he he gets this strength out of like whatever is driving him, the adrenaline of um, just saying the line over and over and over again, and then that great 
the death scene so great because he just has the line of, I want my father back, you son of a bitch, and he stabs him. And realistically enough, they have Christopher Guest just fall over. You know, there's no death rattle. There's no, like, final words or anything. It just... It happens where, I mean, I've never stabbed anybody with a sword, but I could imagine that in a big way that it's probably going to happen in some way like that. Maybe they writhe in pain a little bit more. But um, but it certainly is bloody enough of a scene without being too gory either. Yeah, this movie does action well without a lot of blood and explosions. Mm-hmm. That, that that that's a lesson we need to remember as yes. we carry on. Yes. And the 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 machine, the torture device, also without mm. a lot of blood. It's just a bunch of suction cups placed on somebody's body and it's almost like the um I, I've had this conversation about comic books with people where we've talked about how there are some moments and front panels of comic books where somebody is getting something ripped out but they don't show it because they couldn't because the comics code authority was like no you ha- you can't you're not allowed to show it mm-hmm. but your your mind fills in the blanks and the scene where he um the the two times they have Wesley strapped to the machine there's nothing gory about the moment and yet you can you can feel his pain because your brain is kind of doing that calculus to put together like what this guy is suffering through yeah it, it's true and there's just like this simple barometer I put it on one. I've taken away one year of your life. Mm-hmm. Oh shit! Now it's at fifty. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, you know, this, the, it's it, it just the simplicity is is much more beautiful and much more effective yeah. than than a lot of lights and gadgets. Yeah. And uh, from there, they take him to Miracle Max in a scene with two actors with incredible comedic timing. And I know you've been watching. Have you have you watched all of season three of the Un- Unbreakable uh, Kimmy Schmidt? Uh, I I think we have two more episodes. Okay. But but I can I can see Carol Kane. <laughs> oh, absolutely! I totally. was thinking that as I rewatched the film. Yeah. Yeah, especially um, especially the "I'm not a witch, I'm your wife" moment, and you know we're humping, humping, humping. She's just walking around tormenting him and. And and Billy Crystal doing like basically the old Jewish guy bit of like especially when like the the mutton <laughs> the mutton lettuce and tomato when the mutton's nice and lean I just love that like just lines like that just just get me all the time because it's this old it's like almost this like old style of comedy like something out of a Mel Brooks movie or something which. To Reiner's credit, he's got kind of a pedigree from, because his father was a, uh, his father's Carl Reiner, who is of that generation. He and Mel Brooks were uh, have that very very famous, um, oh, what the hell's the name of the bit? It's like the three thousand year old man bit or six million year old man bit or something, caveman bit or something. And so it's Billy Crystal. I feel like is like doing a bit uh, through the whole thing, but it really, really, really works. And Manny Patinkin is such a great straight man in that scene. Comedian. He is. And um He he certainly can blade without <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah. Um the albino appears for like I think he's got like two lines. But he's got that great like where he clears his throat and he's just talking normally bit, which is just a throwaway gag. 
but it cracks me up every single time I watch it. And then you have the priest at the wedding. Oh, yeah. Which which I think I threatened at least one of my relatives at my wedding saying, do not say that in front of... Because they were going around like the couple of days before... Mowage. I'm just like, please, please don't embarrass me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would have been really cool. I, 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 I would have allowed the the minister at my wedding to do that. <sighs> yeah, like you just have this this moment where, where the decor was just so built up, and 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 you expect this like fantastically ornate liturgy, and then you have. Marriage. Yeah, it's 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 this wonderful breaking of expectations in a way that just makes total sense. And I love the way this scene is staged because it's it's intercut with Fezzik and Wesley and Inigo outside of the gate and lighting um, Fezzik on fire so they can get back so they can get into the castle and there's all this hubbub and all this commotion going on and you cut back to this back to the um, church the, the the chapel and he's just. A blessed arrangement. Like he's just going so slowly, and and Humperdinck's like skip to the end. Like you just, <laughs> which any one of us would be doing anyway. But like you know, <laughs> man and wife. <laughs> you know, just this little little bits. Um, I noticed how Robin, how young Robin Wright is in this movie. And I think it's because I've been watching a lot of House of Cards. <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree. I had the same reaction. And rewatching it this most recent time, she looks so much younger to me than she ever had before. Part of that is is because this may be the this may be the first time that I've seen it now that I am older than Buttercup. Mm-hmm. So that that so that could be a difference as well. But yeah, she, she's so young. Yeah, and I want to say she was about eighteen or nineteen when this was filmed. And her only role before that was she was like on a soap opera for a little while. I did joke the other night with Amanda that I guess the only hope had had um, the marriage gone through and Inigo and Wesley failed, that the only hope we have to hold out is that eventually Buttercup grows up to be Claire Underwood. <laughs> so we had a nice laugh of trying to picture Buttercup taking over Florin. <laughs> or scheming. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful, yes. So yeah, so we've covered this pretty well i mean there's there's not a ton of stuff to criticize about it uh it's it's just and i knew that we were just going to come on and kind of gush about the movie for 45 minutes or an hour so um any last thoughts uh we we can't end without uh, a nice rhyme so how about this podcast conversation has been fun and now our time is done Oh, perfect. <laughs> you don't have a podcast, obviously. Usually, uh, my guests do, and they will they would plug their their stuff. But um, since uh, since you're an avid reader and 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 a, and uh, and one of my uh, one of my colleagues, um, I said recommend a book or, or or something you've read or watched recently. So uh, take it away. I, I definitely think everyone should read or listen to the audiobook version of As You Wish, the Carrie Elwes autobiography. Um, the audiobook is really fun because it, it has a full cast. Um, Carrie Elwes reads, and there are several other guest readers. And he's he's a really, really good impressionist. So for the people who don't read their own parts, 
uh, he he just does a voice too, and he does a really great Bill Clinton. So I, <laughs> I think every I think everyone should read As You Wish. All right, cool. Well, thanks for coming on and thanks for doing this. This was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Cool. All right, and uh, I will be back in about a month uh, after this episode um, with um, my little. September episode will be my annual coverage of the Baltimore Comic-Con. Until then, take care and thanks for listening. Come, my love, I'll tell you a tale Of a boy and girl and their love story And how he loved her oh so much And all the charms she did possess This did happen once upon a time When things were not so complex And how he worshipped the ground she walked And when he looked in her eyes He became obsessed My love is like a storybook story But it's as real as the feelings I feel My love is like a storybook story But it's as real as the feelings I feel It's as real as the feelings I feel Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. It's as real as the feelings I feel.
Thank you for everything. Okay. Bye-bye, boys. Have fun storming the castle. Think it'll work? It would take a miracle. Bye-bye.